At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, October 3rd, 2017 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I will provide you here today a service. I will arm you with ammunition. Ammunition about how to disarm pro-gun arguments. Oh, God, there is a Mobius strip. All right, here we go. Here's the argument. Gun control. That doesn't work. Just look at Chicago. Now, this is a complicated charge to deal with, because if you know stuff about Chicago, you're going to say, ah, wait, hold on. Chicago actually doesn't have the strictest gun laws. After the Heller decision, they strip Chicago of their very strict gun laws. And also, Chicago's neighboring states and communities have no gun laws. So it's really hard for a non is what I say. Yes. Pursue those angles on your own time. Most of them are correct, but it doesn't matter because here's a better way to argue. So you hear the claim. Gun control. Chicago. Look at Chicago. Doesn't work in Chicago. Here's the counterclaim. Ah, but in New York City, it does. Now, at this point, they might ask for, give me some proof. And here you go. Guess what? This year in New York, murders are on a pace to set a record, the good kind of record, well under 300 murders. City of over 8 million people. That is a murder rate of below four per hundred thousand. Now, nationally, the murder rate's a little over five per hundred thousand, not for cities, for everywhere. What I'm saying is this. New York City is significantly safer on average than the United States as a whole. Plop down somewhere random in the United States. If that plop down place is New York City, you're less likely to get murdered there than wherever you might have plopped at random. Don't plop at random, by the way. That'll get you killed in some places. And the thing is, New York City has really tough gun laws. You can own a gun. You can own an AR-15. That is true throughout New York State. You do need to submit an application to the police to get a gun. They're very thorough about it. They will fingerprint you. It'll cost you $250, $140 in uh, application fees, $90 in fingerprints, maybe $20 in postage. It does take three to six months. But it also works and a remarkable number of New Yorkers aren't dead because it works. But yeah, Chicago's gun laws don't work. Let's let's just concede that point. So here's what you do. You make an analogy. Okay, we're both saying that New York City's works, but Chicago's doesn't. Well, let's talk about penicillin. Penicillin cures sepsis. Penicillin cures tonsillitis and meningitis and diphtheria and syphilis and gonorrhea and strep throat and rheumatic fever. So my idea is we try penicillin to cure scarlet fever. Now, the Chicago doesn't work for gun laws guy might say, guy or, you know, White House spokeswoman, might say, wait, okay, you want to try penicillin for scarlet fever? Wait, penicillin doesn't do anything for cancer. Cancer is a really big killer, and so is heart disease. And I'm willing to say, not only does penicillin not cure heart disease, it might make heart disease a little worse, chugging all that penicillin. Still, don't you think maybe we should try it for scarlet fever? No, no, no. Because I just cited two prominent cases where we know it doesn't work. So therefore, it's useless to try it elsewhere. And that right there is the gun control doesn't work 
because Chicago argument right there. And by the way, how this story ends is penicillin does cure scarlet fever. I know you were wondering. By the way, I'm allergic to penicillin. I can't take penicillin, but I'm also, I'd say, equally allergic to AR-15s. On the show today, more gun spiels. You love them. More ways to think about gun reform. But first, the presidency. You know, it doesn't seem that easy. One day, you're getting criticized for making the factually accurate point that Puerto Rico is surrounded by ocean. The next day, you're actually in Puerto Rico still getting criticized for correctly saying that running the government sometimes requires you to spend money to save people's lives. It's so hard. It's so unfair. But historian Jeremy Surrey is here to go one step further. He is the author of The Impossible Presidency. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The presidency is the most powerful office in the land, but that has been true since the first president. Uh, Fun fact, it was George Washington. Here's an example that I always like to cite. Abraham Lincoln, in many ways, redefined the presidency and is always ranked as the first or second best president and was a really, really powerful president. Right now, the Department of Justice has a budget of $30 billion and 100,000 employees. In Lincoln's time, the Department of Justice did not exist. There was no Department of Justice. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant signed it into being. This just goes to show how much less was on the plate, even of the guy who was overseeing a war between the states. The Impossible Presidency is a new book by historian Jeremy Surrey. The subtitle is The Rise and Fall of America's Highest Office. Hello, Jeremy. How are you? I'm fine, Thanks for having me on. I agree. It does seem impossible. I would think most recent presidents, excepting the current one who thinks it'll be so easy or head'll spin, would call it all but impossible. Was there a time, though, where it wasn't impossible to be president? So 
one of the key points of my book is that it's always been a difficult job, and in some ways it's always been an inhuman job. But for the first 150 years of our history, Mike, and your example of Abraham Lincoln is spot on, as difficult as the job was, presidents were able to match the power they had reasonably effectively to the needs of the country. But at a certain point, we've become so big that there's a a mismatch, and that mismatch is a, a mismatch no president can solve. If I were to list the items on, say, Andrew Jackson's agenda, and I choose Jackson because it wasn't Lincoln, it wasn't in charge of the Civil War, but of course he had to oversee America during a tumultuous time. But if we had to look at his agenda, would it seem like half the agenda of a modern president, a quarter of the agenda? Just compare what was on his plate to what's on a modern president's plate. The agenda for President Andrew Jackson was probably pretty similar to the agenda in terms of the amount of work that uh, my 12-year-old has today. Our lives have become so much busier. That doesn't mean that Jackson was was not doing more sophisticated work. In fact, my point is that he was more sophisticated because he had so much less on his daily agenda. He did not have to deal with health care. He did not have to deal with a crisis in Syria. He did not have to manage a whole large uh, Justice Department, as you said. So he was much more of a strategic leader and much more of a thinker than he was a manager. Our presidents have become the latter now. They're managing something huge rather than thinking deeply about our future. And up until what point did the president actually not have to really triage? Like, up until what year or what era would the president just deal with all the stuff that was brought to him and then could go to sleep at 930 at night? Right, right. So I, I argue in the book, and I think the evidence is pretty clear, I'm just really reporting on the, on the research, that really up until Franklin Roosevelt's presidency, most presidents are not dominated by crises. Of course, Lincoln spends his entire presidency with the, world, with the Civil War. But even there, the war is focused on a relatively small number of goals for President Lincoln. But what you see from Franklin Roosevelt's time forward is that every day is dominated by a crisis that pulls the president off of his priorities. Here's the test. Uh, From Franklin Roosevelt's period forward, there are hardly any days when the presidents are working on what they think is most important. Instead, they're working on what's urgent, and the urgent crowds out the important. So... For Roosevelt, legitimate crisis. He didn't know that Pearl Harbor would be bombed, uh, but it was. He knew that there was uh, trouble brewing in Europe, but he didn't know Pearl Harbor would be bombed. Who would say that this wasn't a crisis? But what about post-FDR? Were the crises just as defined by the president or his advisor or the press, or were they legitimate crises? What you see with Franklin Roosevelt, who I argue was the last great president, the last president to master the office, is even though he's being bombarded with crises, including the Depression at home as well as uh, World War II, uh, he's still able to sit above the issues and really pull things toward a strategic focus. You see this in his calendars in that he has lots of time to think and set the agenda. What you see, especially from President Kennedy forward, is that the range of issues that involve entertaining heads of state dealing with Cold War crises as well as domestic needs make it impossible for them to do that. And the Founding Fathers never, ever considered that presidents would be spending day upon day meeting with leaders from halfway around the world time and time again and having to deal with their demands. They all come and ask for something. They don't just show up and shake hands. Right. They all ask for something. Yeah, yeah, and it was probably easier even for Kennedy than it is for a post-Cold War president because back then you could just generally uh, say, all right, we're with the anti-communists and the other guys will be with the communists. I mean, that was a decent enough heuristic to guide you in foreign policy. 
Exactly. And one of the things that made that heuristic attractive for presidents uh, was not just the Soviet threat, but because it, it had that ordering effect. One of the things presidents struggle with now, and one of the things I think they need, is some ordering philosophy for the world. And it can't just be that we're the, you know, we're the biggest power. There's got to be some way of differentiating who should get attention and who shouldn't. Right. So as you've mentioned to me, it takes so much of your attention. You could flit about around from crisis to crisis. But it seems there are two different strains of what you recommend. One is building in time for contemplation. But another basket of recommendations is know what you want going in and stick to it. So that's a little different from being contemplative. That's more like being on task. Which would you say is the best way for a president to actually achieve something? Both are required. I think there's a third thing as well. You need to maintain a sense of perspective. You need some modesty. Uh, one of the big problems, and this affects Republicans and Democrats post-45, is that the, the life as president is more and more isolated and more and more inhuman, and you develop this sense that though you are the ruler of the universe, maintaining some perspective, that's why history is so important, maintaining some modesty. I don't know where we get that from because our system privileges the opposite, but we need that in our leadership. Is there an example, a tangible example from a president who tried to do this or successfully did it? Well, I think where we can see it is Roosevelt, Truman, and Eisenhower, the three presidents before Kennedy. Uh, it's not only that their calendars are different, it's that they have a different approach to the world. They really did not think that as president they could solve all problems, and they did not think they were all-knowing. What's endearing about these men, and I sound like I'm being nostalgic for old men, but, but maybe that's what I am, they didn't have to be the smartest in every room. They were able to surround themselves with smart people who disagreed with them and learn from them. Right now, we privilege rulers of the universe in our companies and in our government who don't actually listen in meetings. I've sat in on some of these. They just come in and tell you what they think. And, and that's not leading. That's, that's pontificating, and that's what gets us into places like Vietnam and Iraq. Is this um, at all an argument for government isn't the solution, government's the problem. Uh, maybe we should want our, our president and our government to do less. So, well, my argument is not for small government or big government. My argument is for focused good government. I think the range of responsibilities for presidents should be reduced, but that might lead them to get more involved in certain areas. Let me be very clear about this. I think we are too involved in the Middle East. We should get out of the Middle East. Presidents have put too much attention to that area of the world, but they have not given enough attention to the environment. Yes, you have an office where you can make a rule about particulates in the atmosphere, but you definitely cannot make a rule about which parallel the Palestinians live on and which the Lebanese live on. And yet we seem to do the latter instead of the former. I, I agree 100%. That's why our country's going in the wrong direction. Corporations have also expanded exponentially. I know Amazon or Facebook's in the news a lot. They're not in the news as much as the presidency is. But could the president borrow from successful business executives just in terms of, you know, either delegating responsibility or getting to the important things and not getting distracted? Yes, yes. And one of the suggestions I make toward the end of the book is that too much power is in one person in the presidency. Uh, most CEOs, they don't do as much as individuals, and they are much more strategically focused, uh, whereas our president, going back to the founding, is a unitary executive. Maybe the analogy, Mike, is that we've gone from being a, um, a family business to now being a corporation, 
and we might need more of that kind of structure. But that doesn't mean we just need a businessman in charge. It means we need different kinds of people with different kinds of roles. So would there be whole sectors of what the president's responsible for that he'd only, you know, check in on two times a year? Is that what you're saying? Well, I I don't know if it would be two times a year, but we have a model in every other democracy. We're the only major democracy in the world that has a unitary executive. I think we'd be much better served, and I think President Obama and President Bush would have been far better presidents if they had a prime minister, someone elected by the nation, to oversee legislative matters. Imagine if Paul Ryan were accountable to the nation not just accountable to the six extreme members of the Republican caucus who made him and can take away his role as Speaker of the House. Now, I think about Donald Trump, and I was thinking about all the ways he is going to fail by measures of a great president or a successful first year. I mean, I think he's going to show that the office was impossible for him to grapple with and that he wasn't up to it. But I think the more interesting point is that his very presence and the way he runs the presidency is a really good vindication of your book because anyone who gets almost all their information from cable news would think what you have to do is go from crisis to crisis, is forget about ever keeping your eye on the big prize. In fact, invent a crisis if there's no crisis to go through. This is exactly the trap of the president. And since all he knows of the presidency is what he's seen on the news, he's eager to fall into that trap. He doesn't understand that the presidency is not about going crisis to crisis. The only way to succeed is to be able to focus on a few strategic things and to bring people together, not to divide them. And the thing is, he came in with the brand as the businessman president. He could have gone with that model. He could have broken with the tradition and say, you elected me as the guy who broke with tradition. And so, yes, you might not hear from me on a number of issues related to whatever my COO is tasked with. That's how I'm running my presidency. But that was yet another missed opportunity. Right. Many people ask me this, uh, and it's a fair question. Isn't he trying to do what I suggest by not being as deeply involved with the policy details in the way that Obama and Clinton were? And in fact, what we're getting with Trump is the worst of both worlds, because he is in some sense delegating, but he delegates and then undermines the people he's delegated to. That is the worst of all worlds. He would be fired by any board of directors for doing that. Is there a kind of person or a background of person or a previous position that such a person would have had that you think could reform the presidency? I think that the most successful presidents of the 20th century, and they are the two Roosevelts, Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt, they had extensive local and federal experience, but they were not people whose whole lives were about that, which is to say they came from a background where they thought about citizenship and public service, not just in government, but they had both been in the state legislature. They had both been a secret- assistant secretary of the Navy during a war, which meant they were running a big bureaucracy. And then they both were mayors and governors. So I think that combination, that's what we need. We don't need someone who has no public experience, mm-hmm. and we don't need someone who's only been in the Senate or only in a governor's chair. We need someone who's had a variety of local and federal experiences and understands how to get people to do things when you have a title but your direct authority is minimal. And that's the challenge the president has. He has this big title, but he doesn't really do anything. And how do you get people to do what you want them to do? Jeremy Surrey is a professor of history, and he holds the Mac Brown Distinguished Chair for Leadership in Global Affairs at the University of Texas. Whoa, hook him horns. Uh, he, is the, <laughs> he is the author of The Impossible Presidency. Thank you, Jeremy. Mike, thanks for having me on.
And now the spiel. In the wake of yesterday's Las Vegas massacre, a lot of people are asking, why can't we solve this problem, this public health problem, this this product safety problem? Look at cars. From 1966 to 1973, over 50,000 Americans died every year on the road in automobile crashes. And since then, the population has grown by 130 million, but auto deaths have gone down by 15,000. Why? Because we wanted it to go down. We cared about our fellow man. We cared about ourselves. We enacted higher standards, higher standards for roads, stricter drunk driving laws, and then we invented technology. Seatbelts, airbags, crumple zones, and in most cases, we mandated that technology. Same is true with airline crashes. Hell, the same is true of lawn darts. After 9-11, we saw the thing that had caused massive deaths. We went right to the root of that thing. Perhaps we even overcorrected. But look, there hasn't been a successful skyjacking of a jet that left a U.S. airport since then. Why can't we do this with guns? Some say it's the gun lobby. Some say it's gun culture. Some say it's bad legislators. I'll tell you one big reason. Because in all those other cases I mentioned, the system in question was malfunctioning. Cars do crash, but that's not what they're designed to do. Lawn darts, of course, can penetrate a child's torso, but that's not what they're supposed to do. But guns, rifles, AR-15s, are doing exactly what guns are supposed to do. Rip holes in targets. And if the target is human, well, actually, that is why the AR-15 was invented. A home version of the M-16, which was America's answer to the AK-47, a tool for killing people. And with all those other things, we have a sense of the collective that gun owners don't. There wasn't a powerful enough force in America who said, but I have a car and I bought it with the intention of crashing that car. Or I have a lawn dart. It is my constitutional right to hurl said lawn dart, perhaps at a bad guy with a lawn dart. But with guns, there are millions, a little over 100 million owners who say, I have this gun and I wanted to do exactly what guns were designed to do. If they tell that bad man not to use the gun in the exact way it was meant to be used, what is stopping them from telling me, a good guy, not to use my gun? And it becomes a never-ending cycle. Because of the gun owner's disinclination to change gun laws, it means that bad guys are going to keep getting their hands on guns, and that, of course, will justify me as a good guy from having to own a gun because all these bad guys. I also want to acknowledge, and this often goes unacknowledged, that we are asking good law-abiding, family-loving people to give up something, their AR-15, let's say, something that they like, something that they might love, something that they paid a lot for, something that's a source of pride and recreation and identity. We're asking them to give that up because some asshole who wasn't them did the wrong thing with a gun, the thing that every responsible owner knows you shouldn't do. It's not like cars. We never told people, hey, you, just don't drive. No more driving. People can't drive anymore because other people got in crashes. That message was never given. Or even if gun control doesn't mean we're banning all guns, we never said, okay, now we can't drive in any cars that go more than 50 miles an hour because a whole bunch of them crash and kill people. We never said that. We did ask people to give up lawn darts totally and completely. But lawn darts were less ingrained in the national consciousness, I'm going to stipulate. So let's be honest that we're asking Americans who did nothing wrong to sacrifice because of Americans who did a horrible thing. And it's easy for non-gun owners to do that. I mean, it's not 
easy to do it. It's easy to ask. It's not easy to get anything done. But it's easy to go to someone who you don't share a lot of interests with and say, hey, give up this thing that you love, this thing that I don't really understand or empathize with. What I would like to see is actual AR-15 owners coming forward and maybe like an ice bucket challenge kind of thing, but doing this, saying proudly, boldly proclaiming, look, I love my rifle. I would never do anything wrong with my rifle. But I know if I give up my rifle and my neighbor gives up his rifle and we all give up our semi-automatic rifles, if we all agree to give ours up, we know this will mean that one or two fewer mass slaughters happen. And I've made the calculation, and for all the joy and identity I get out of my AR-15, I'm willing to trade it for an unknown future event not happening. It's a big sacrifice to make. I'd have tremendous respect for someone who made that sacrifice. And I do think there is an opportunity there to start some form of a movement. And I do know the first person who goes out on that limb will probably get treated like the Dixie Chicks were treated by the country music establishment after their anti-Bush comments. But there is an opportunity here. It is a big ask, and it is tied up on many levels with the concept of self-defense. And that's it for today's show. Today, The Gist was produced by Mary Wilson, who was raised on promises. The Gist was also produced by Dan Schrader. He loves Jesus and America, too. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast, but he don't come around here no more. The Gist, I take nothing back. Well, take back Vanessa Redgrave. Take back Joe Piscopo. We could sign off on that, I think. Tough day. We'll be better tomorrow. Peru, de Peru, du Peru. And thanks for listening. We could dance if we want to. We could leave your friends behind. Because your friends don't dance. And if they don't dance, well, they're no friends of mine.